Section 10 of The Natural History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Natural History, Volume 1, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 10. Chapter 56. Objects which are never struck. Among the productions of the earth, thunder never strikes the laurel, nor does it descend more than five feet into the earth. Those, therefore, who are timid consider the deepest caves as the most safe, or tents made of the skins of the animal called the sea-calf, since this is the only marine animal which is never struck, as is the case among birds with the eagle. On this account it is represented as the bearer of this weapon. In Italy, between Terracina and the temple of Feronia, the people have left off building towers in time of war, every one of them having been destroyed by thunderbolts. Chapter 57 Showers of milk, blood, flesh, iron, wool, and baked tiles. Besides these, we learn from certain monuments that from the lower part of the atmosphere it rained milk and blood, in the consulship of M. Achilles and C. Porcius, and frequently at other times. This was the case with respect to flesh in the consulship of P. Volumnius and Servius Sulpicius, and it is said that what was not devoured by the birds did not become putrid. It also rained iron among the Lucanians, the year before Crassus was slain by the Parthians, as well as all the Lucanian soldiers, of whom there was a great number in this army. The substance which fell had very much the appearance of sponge. The augurs warned the people against wounds that might come from above. In the consulship of L. Paulus and C. Marcellus it rained wool round the castle of Carusanum, near which place a year after T. Annius Milo was killed. It is recorded among the transactions of that year that when he was pleading his own cause there was a shower of baked tiles. Chapter 58. Rattling of arms and the sound of trumpets heard in the sky. We have heard that during the war with the Cimbri, the rattling of arms and the sound of trumpets were heard through the sky, and that the same thing has frequently happened before and since. Also, that in the third consulship of Marius, armies were seen in the heavens by the Amarini and the Tudertus, encountering each other as if from the east and west, and that those from the east were repelled. It is not at all wonderful for the heavens themselves to be in flames, and it has been more frequently observed when the clouds have taken up a great deal of fire. Chapter 59. Of stones that have fallen from the clouds, the opinion of Anaxagoras respecting them. The Greeks boast that Anaxagoras, the Clasomenian, in the second year of the 78th Olympiad, from his knowledge of what relates to the heavens, had predicted that at a certain time a stone would fall from the sun. And the thing accordingly happened, in the daytime, in a part of Thrace, at the river Aegos. The stone is now to be seen, a wagon-load in size and of a burnt appearance. There was also a comet shining in the night at that time. But to believe that this had been predicted would be to admit that the divining powers of Anaxagoras were still more wonderful and that our knowledge of the nature of things, and indeed everything else, 
would be thrown into confusion were we to suppose either that the sun is itself composed of stone, or that there was even a stone in it. Yet there can be no doubt that stones have frequently fallen from the atmosphere. There is a stone, a small one indeed, at this time in the gymnasium of Abydos, which on this account is held in veneration, and which the same Anaxagoras predicted would fall in the middle of the earth. There is another at Cassandria, formerly called Posidea, which from this circumstance was built in that place. I have myself seen one in the country of the Voconti, which had been brought from the fields only a short time before. Chapter 60. The Rainbow. What we name rainbows frequently occur, and are not considered either wonderful or ominous, for they do not predict with certainty either rain or fair weather. It is obvious that the rays of the sun being projected upon a hollow cloud, the light is thrown back to the sun and is refracted, and that the variety of colours is produced by a mixture of clouds, air, and fire. The rainbow is certainly never produced except in the part opposite to the sun, nor even in any other form except that of a semicircle. Nor are they ever formed at night, although Aristotle asserts that they are sometimes seen at that time. He acknowledges, however, that it can only be on the fourteenth day of the moon. They are seen in the winter the most frequently, when the days are shortening, after the autumnal equinox. They are not seen when the days increase again, after the vernal equinox, nor on the longest days about the summer solstice, but frequently at the winter solstice, when the days are the shortest. When the sun is low they are high, and when the sun is high they are low. They are smaller when in the east or west, but are spread out wider. In the south they are small, but of a greater span. In the summer they are not seen at noon, but after the autumnal equinox at any hour. There are never more than two seen at once. Chapter 61 The Nature of Hail, Snow, Hoar, Mist, Dew, The Forms of Clouds I do not find that there is any doubt entertained respecting the following points. Hail is produced by frozen rain, and snow by the same fluid less firmly concreted, and hoar by frozen dew. During the winter, snow falls, but not hail. Hail itself falls more frequently during the day than the night, and is more quickly melted than snow. There are no mists either in the summer or during the greatest cold of winter. There is neither dew nor hoar formed during great heat or winds, nor unless the night be serene. Fluids are diminished in bulk by being frozen, and, when the ice is melted, we do not obtain the same quantity of fluid as at first. The clouds are varied in their colour and figure according as the fire which they contain is in excess or is absorbed by them. CHAPTER 62 the peculiarities of the weather in different places. There are, moreover, certain peculiarities in certain places. In Africa, dew falls during the night in summer. In Italy, at Locri and at the Lake Velenum, there is never a day in which a rainbow is not seen. At Rhodes and at Syracuse, the sky is never so covered with clouds but that the sun is visible at one time or another. These things, however, will be better detailed in their proper place so far respecting the air. Chapter 63. Nature of the Earth. Next comes the Earth, on which alone of all parts of nature we have bestowed the name that implies maternal veneration. 
it is appropriated to man as the heavens are to God. She receives us at our birth, nourishes us when born, and ever afterwards supports us. Lastly, embracing us in her bosom when we are rejected by the rest of nature, she then covers us with a special tenderness, rendered sacred to us inasmuch as she renders us sacred, bearing our monuments and titles, continuing our names, and extending our memory, in opposition to the shortness of life. In our anger we imprecate her on those who are now no more, as if we were ignorant that she is the only being who can never be angry with man. The water passes into shower, is concreted into hail, swells into rivers, is precipitated in torrents. The air is condensed into clouds, rages in squalls, but the earth, kind, mild, and indulgent as she is, and always ministering to the wants of mortals, how many things do we compel her to produce spontaneously? What odours and flowers, nutritive juices, forms and colours! With what good faith does she render back all that has been entrusted to her? It is the vital spirit which must bear the blame of producing noxious animals, for the earth is constrained to receive the seeds of them, and to support them when they are produced. The fault lies in the evil nature which generates them. The earth will no longer harbour a serpent after it has attacked any one, and thus she even demands punishment in the name of those who are indifferent about it themselves. She pours forth a profusion of medicinal plants, and is always producing something for the use of man. We may even suppose that it is out of compassion to us that she has ordained certain substances to be poisonous, in order that when we are weary of life, hunger, a mode of death the most foreign to the kind disposition of the earth, might not consume us by a slow decay, that precipices might not lacerate our mangled bodies, that the unseemly punishment of the halter may not torture us, by stopping the breath of one who seeks his own destruction, or that we may not seek our death in the ocean, and become food for our graves, or that our bodies may not be gashed by steel. On this account it is that nature has produced a substance which is very easily taken, and by which life is extinguished, the body remaining undefiled and retaining all its blood, and only causing a degree of thirst. And when it is destroyed by this means, neither bird nor beast will touch the body, but he who has perished by his own hands is reserved for the earth. But it must be acknowledged that everything which the earth has produced, as a remedy for our evils, we have converted into the poison of our lives. For do we not use iron, which we cannot do without, for this purpose? But although this cause of mischief has been produced, we ought not to complain. We ought not to be ungrateful to this one part of nature. How many luxuries, and how many insults, does she not bear for us? She is cast into the sea, and, in order that we may introduce seas into her bosom, she is washed away by the waves. She is continually tortured for her iron, her timber, stone, fire, corn, and is even much more subservient to our luxuries than to our mere support. What indeed she endures on her surface might be tolerated, but we penetrate also into her bowels, digging out the veins of gold and silver, and the ores of copper and lead. We also search for gems and certain small pebbles, driving our trenches to a great death. We tear out her entrails in order to extract the gems with which we may load our fingers. How many hands are worn down that one little joint may be ornamented! 
if the infernal regions really existed, certainly these burrows of avarice and luxury would have penetrated into them. And truly we wonder that this same earth should have produced anything noxious. But, I suppose, the savage beasts protect her and keep off our sacrilegious hands. For do we not dig among serpents and handle poisonous plants along with those veins of gold? But the goddess shows herself more propitious to us, inasmuch as all this wealth ends in crimes, slaughter, and war, and that while we drench her with our blood, we cover her with unburied bones, and being covered with these, and her anger being thus appeased, she conceals the crimes of mortals. I consider the ignorance of her nature as one of the evil effects of an ungrateful mind. CHAPTER 64 OF THE FORM OF THE EARTH Every one agrees that it has the most perfect figure. We always speak of the ball of the earth, and we admit it to be a globe bounded by the poles. It has not indeed the form of an absolute sphere, from the number of lofty mountains and flat plains, but if the termination of the lines be bounded by a curve, this would compose a perfect sphere. And this we learn from arguments drawn from the nature of things, although not from the same considerations which we made use of with respect to the heavens. For in these the hollow convexity everywhere bends on itself, and leans upon the earth as its centre, whereas the earth rises up solid and dense like something that swells up and is protruded outwards. The heavens bend towards the centre, while the earth goes from the centre, the continual rolling of the heavens about it forcing its immense globe into the form of a sphere. CHAPTER 65 WHETHER THERE BE ANTIPODES On this point there is a great contest between the learned and the vulgar. We maintain that there are men dispersed over every part of the earth, that they stand with their feet turned towards each other, and that the vault of the heavens appears alike to all of them, and that they, all of them, appear to tread equally on the middle of the earth. If any one should ask why those situated opposite to us do not fall, we directly ask in return whether those on the opposite side do not wonder that we do not fall. But I may make a remark that will appear plausible even to the most unlearned, that if the earth were of the figure of an unequal globe, like the seed of a pine, still it may be inhabited in every part. But of how little moment is this, when we have another miracle rising up to our notice? The earth itself is pendant, and does not fall with us. It is doubtful whether this be from the force of the spirit which is contained in the universe, or whether it would fall, did not nature resist, by allowing of no place where it might fall for as the seed of fire is nowhere but in fire, nor of water except in water, nor of air except in air, so there is no situation for the earth except in itself, everything else repelling it. It is indeed wonderful that it should form a globe when there is so much flat surface of the sea and of the plains. And this was the opinion of Dicurchus, a peculiarly learned man who measured the heights of mountains under the direction of the kings, and estimated Pelion, which is the highest, at twelve hundred fifty paces perpendicular, and considered this as not affecting the round figure of the globe. But this appears to me to be doubtful, as I well know that the summits of some of the Alps rise up by a long space of not less than fifty thousand paces. But what the vulgar most strenuously contend against is, 
to be compelled to believe that the water is forced into a rounded figure. Yet there is nothing more obvious to the sight among the phenomena of nature, for we see everywhere that drops, when they hang down, assume the form of small globes, and when they are covered with dust, or have the down of leaves spread over them, they are observed to be completely round, and when a cup is filled, the liquid swells up in the middle. But on account of the subtle nature of the fluid and its inherent softness, the fact is more easily ascertained by our reason than by our sight, and it is even more wonderful that if a very little fluid only be added to a cup when it is full, the superfluous quantity runs over, whereas the contrary happens if we add a solid body, even as much as would weigh twenty denarii. The reason of this is that what is dropped in raises up the fluid at the top, while what is poured on it slides off from the projecting surface. It is from the same cause that the land is not visible from the body of a ship when it may be seen from the mast, and that when a vessel is receding, if any bright object be fixed to the mast, it seems gradually to descend and finally to become invisible. And the ocean, which we admit to be without limits, if it had any other figure, could it cohere and exist without falling, there being no external margin to contain it. And the same wonder still recurs, how is it that the extreme parts of the sea, although it be in the form of a globe, do not fall down? In opposition to which doctrine, the Greeks, to their great joy and glory, were the first to teach us, by their subtle geometry, that this could not happen, even if the seas were flat, and of the figure which they appear to be for since water always runs from a higher to a lower level, and this is admitted to be essential to it, no one ever doubted that the water would accumulate on any shore, as much as its slope would allow it. It is also certain that the lower anything is, so much the nearer is it to the centre, and that all the lines which are drawn from this point to the water which is nearest to it are shorter than those which reach from the beginning of the sea to its extreme parts. Hence it follows that all the water from every part tends towards the centre, and, because it has this tendency, does not fall. Chapter 66. How the water is connected with the earth. Of the navigation of the sea and the rivers. We must believe that the great artist nature has so arranged it that as the arid and dry earth cannot subsist by itself and without moisture, nor, on the other hand, can the water subsist unless it be supported by the earth, they are connected by a mutual union. The earth opens her harbours, while the water pervades the whole earth, within, without, and above, its veins running in all directions, like connecting links, and bursting out on even the highest ridges, where, forced up by the air, and pressed out by the weight of the earth, it shoots forth as from a pipe, and is so far from being in danger of falling, that it bounds up to the highest and most lofty places. Hence the reason is obvious why the seas are not increased by the daily accession of so many rivers. The earth has, therefore, the whole of its globe girt on every side by the sea flowing round it, and this is not a point to be investigated by arguments, but what has been ascertained by experience. End of section 10